Well, great to see you guys today. Um, I'm really pumped about what God's got for us this morning. Uh, we're back in the book of Romans. Uh, but the passage in Romans actually says something that I think would be so easy to miss and gloss over. So if you've got your Bibles or your apps, you can get not to the book of Romans, but to, to the book of Acts. Uh, I think in Acts, there's a really cool illustration that uh, God gives us about what Paul actually is going to be talking about in Romans. So my guess is that when we finish looking at what's in Acts, we're going to go back to Romans at the end, and we're going to have a far better idea of what Paul, what Christ is actually asking us to be a part of as Christians. And by the way, I, lo I love it that our kids are running around. Let them have fun, right? This is, this is awesome. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into it. God, thanks for the day. Thanks for your time uh, with us. Uh, Thanks for making this place available to us. Thanks for the people that have come. I uh, pray that you might uh, allow me to uh, utter your words as you would have them be said, uh, that we would be changed from our time with you. It's in Christ's name, for his sake, we pray. Amen. Okay, Acts 19, if you've got your Bibles, apps, verse 8. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, it's becoming that. Uh, and it is uh, no story that I ever heard with flannel graph characters in Sunday school growing up, okay? And you'll see why as we dig in here. Uh, Paul is about the business, uh, having been a persecutor of the church. He's now uh, been saved by meeting Christ on the way to Damascus to bash the churches there. And he ends up planting churches all over the Mediterranean rim, known world. And he ends up in a city called Ephesus. And here's what we read in Acts uh, 19. And he, referring to Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus Christ by faith, that's how you get in, right? But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, the Hebrew congregation in the, in the synagogue, he withdrew from them and took the disciples, those basically who had come to faith in Christ, and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Greeks are just basically non-Jews. Non you can see them sometimes in the Bible, we refer to them as Gentiles, but you've got Jews and Greeks and Jews and non-Jews. Say, so, by the way, in this passage, the way thing that's talking about, that's what Christianity was called before it was known as Christianity. Uh, people called Christians the people of the way, because Jesus had said, I am the way, the uh, truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the way to the kingdom. So they call these new believers, these followers of Christ, people of the way. So this entire thing we're going to look at and this blasting out, this incredible explosion from Ephesus into basically all of Turkey and Asia uh, takes place starting in Ephesus. So let me just set the scene for you. Ephesus, you've got not to think about this as some little piddly you know, rural area with thatched roofs and dirt roads. Ephesus is huge. It's the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It's a major port city sitting on the Aegean Sea. It is, in fact, the gateway for all things of the Roman Empire heading east and coming from the east. It's the port through every which everything flows. Uh, so it's a place of merchants and sailors and business, uh, commerce. It's a place, really, that's on everybody's bucket list. 
people would go to Ephesus, return home, and try to tell people about what, what it's like being in Ephesus. And of course, there was no iPhones, no cameras back then, so all they really had is verbal ways to do it, and they couldn't really do it. They just said, you, finally, you just got to go see it for yourself. They got this theater there, not some little cafe where you can hear somebody read poetry or, or a few hundred people can go to a movie. No, they got a theater there that's built into the side of a hill that will seat 24,000 people. If you visit the ruins today, you can still see much of that going on. I mean, that's pretty good construction, wouldn't you say? Oh, and if you're going to go to Ephesus to see the theater, well, you've got to go see the temple, the temple to uh, Artemis or Diana, depending upon whether you're looking at it from a Greek or Roman perspective. Uh, The goddess of fertility, right? 117 columns, each 60 feet tall. The temple and its grounds are bigger than some cities in the Roman Empire. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's an amazing city. And this guy, Paul, once a killer of Christians, once hired by the Jewish religious establishment to go stamp out Christianity wherever he found them, now starts a church there. And Paul, no doubt, shares the story of how he missed Jesus the first time around. Who better to tell that story than a guy like Paul, right? And I love this phrase that's in this passage, the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus means exactly what it says. Tyrant. Probably tells you something about what this guy was like before he became a Christian. I wonder whether he was sitting, listening to Paul in the synagogue, hearing about sin and the sacrifice Jesus made to pay for that sin and how faith in Christ allows you to become part of the whole kingdom. I can imagine maybe he was broken by that and accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Don't know that that's the case. I just suspect it is. All we do know is that after three months of listening to Paul, there arose some dissent in the synagogue. No, no, we're not, we're not going to give up our gods and follow this Jesus person. We're not going to stop trying to keep all of the Jewish laws as our way to getting into heaven and put our faith in Christ. Forget this. So Paul said, fine, fine. You've, you've heard the good news and you've rejected it. So I'm going to take those who have believed and we'll meet somewhere else other than the synagogue. And they end up in the hall of Tyrannus to continue to grow in their relationship with each other and and Christ. And and they must have gotten pretty serious about it. Because in the next two years, every single person, not just in Ephesus, but all of what is now we call Turkey and Asia, heard God's word regarding salvation by faith in Christ. Pretty amazing. So I always ask goofy questions when I'm reading the Bible. You know, my question on this has been a long time. What is it that drove this? What, what made this happen? Why did this occur there? I mean, you're talking about a continent that gets reached. Well, first of all, Ephesus was known, even back then, as the place, the center of the dark arts. Plenty of shops where you can buy your little abracadabra things, your incantations, your parchments, right, that can bring blessings on you or curse on those who you hate. You can bury them in your fields and it's supposed to make your crops do well, right? You can lay them under your pillows at night and they're supposed to bless you and your family or you can bury them in the fields of your enemies with the expectation that their crops would fail. Ephesus is a place where many years later, Shakespeare will write about in his play, The Comedy of Errors. He describes it in that play as a place of deceivers and cheats and swindlers where sorcerers go to learn how to change the minds of men, and witches that can deform bodies with sin of every variety and stripe. 
easily reached. But out of the hall of Tyrannus, in the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, something starts to happen. This is where the story for me gets good. It says this, verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Yeah, I reckon that's extraordinary, wouldn't you say? If that happened around here, would you be amazed? I mean, if Paul's handkerchief, his sweatband, his apron was healing people, that's not ordinary, not even ordinary in the scriptures. So we might find it a little hard to believe. But if you find that hard to believe, you're going to find a lot of things in the Bible difficult to swallow. So, so what's happening here? If you read the passages before this, you find out that Paul heads to Ephesus in the company of a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And together, the three of them set up a tent-making business. So in that culture, in that world, in that day, here's how you figure a day would go. They get up in the morning, they start making tents. Clients would come in, orders would be made, deliveries have to be made. But in this culture, around 11 o'clock, work stops because it gets frighteningly hot. Time for a little siesta. Business would resume about four o'clock. And it's during this siesta time, I suspect, that Paul headed to the hall of Tyrannus and uh, then back at about four o'clock to resume making tents. And maybe it's during, during rush hours, you know, during work hours. People come flowing in. Paul, you got to come quick. You know, Aunt Lulu has fallen ill. We need you to come and pray for her. And Paul might say, well, man, I'd love to, but I'm working here. I got my responsibilities. I got, I got clients. I can't be goofing off, be a bad witness by shirking my responsibilities here. So maybe he takes his headband off and he prays real quick and he hands it to them and says, you go put this on Aunt Lulu. She gets healed. She gets up. Word starts to spread. And even said that Paul's apron that people touched were healing people. This really happened? Yeah. But remember, what we're told here is that what was going on there was extraordinary. It was unusual. It was not typically seen. The Bible makes it clear that this is not ordinarily how God works. So, so again, I ask questions. Why did God choose to make it happen there in Ephesus? We're not really told specifically. But here's what I think, just my speculation. I'm going to tell you if I ever speculate on something. God's word is God's word. My speculations are my speculations. Take them or leave them. But I think here's what's going on. Ephesus was a place known with the dark arts, belief in demonic forces, sorcery, witchcraft. So I think what happens here is that God decides, you know what, I'm going to break into the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire and say to them, you know, oh, you, you believe in trinkets and superstition and crystals and demonic forces and seances, fine. I will deign to stoop to your level. I'll meet you where you're at. I will show you something of my power through aprons and headbands, if that's what it takes to waken you to who I really am. And he plays their game for a while until he gets the attention of the entire city. That's my best assessment of what might be going on here. And then in verse 13, we have this fascinating little story. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, ever think you hear those three words in the same sentence? (laughs) 
itinerant Jewish exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You ever notice when someone has success with something like Paul was having in the, out of the hall of Tyrannus in the tent-making shop, it isn't long before you find people coming up with, with knockoffs, right? In the in, in 1980s, for example, Rubik's Cube. Early on, if you were around then, Rubik's Cube became so popular, you couldn't go to the store and buy one. They were all out. But within six months, there were knockoff Rubik's Cubes everywhere. They didn't turn as easily, and sometimes the corners would fall off, but you could get one. Oh, you want something more modern? How about fidget spinners? If you've got a kid, you know what a fidget spinner is. We don't know who came up with this useless device, but I know this, they're rich. <laughs> they're originally made for kids who had a hard time concentrating in school. They could spin these things and it would help them concentrate. But they became such a craze that you couldn't actually find the real thing. You had to kind of wait for one. But within six months, there were knockoffs everywhere. So today, in the 80s and in the first century, knockoffs were around. In the Ephesian culture, the belief was that every sickness, every illness was brought on by evil spirits. So you bring in these exorcists, these uh, folks that would be paid to cast these spirits out. They had quite a racket going. They'd have their regular seances, their chants, their sayings, and then in this case, they decided to add, oh, and in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come on out of that guy. They were trying to capitalize on the miraculous stuff that was emanating from the hall of Tyrannus. That, that is until today, when they met their match. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. They were itinerant, itinerant Jewish right, exorcists. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know. And Paul I recognized. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Busted. This time they actually did encounter a legitimate evil spirit. I never heard this story in Sunday school with flannel graphic figures. I think I would have remembered that story if I'd heard it in uh, junior high. Seven bleeding naked guys running down the street. I would, I would have remembered that. These were seven professional exorcists. They're itinerant, which means they travel around as they are paid. So you can imagine that in this house, there was a crowd outside the house and probably a whole bunch of family and friends inside waiting to see some healing take place. The exorcists invoke Jesus and Paul's names. Big mistake. All seven completely overpowered, beaten and stripped of their clothing. Oh yeah, people are going to hear about this, right? Here's what it says, verse 17. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Everybody. Jews and Greeks, that's everybody. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had preached, practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value up of all of those and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, or as a result, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Are you kidding me? This actually happened. When word spreads across Ephesus about what just happened, 
to these seven sons of Sceva, on that day, people decided to stop playing games in the name of Jesus. And the name of the Lord, it says, was extolled, meaning held in high honor. So a bunch of people who had not been Christians became Christians on that day. But here's what really grabbed my attention. Who else got grabbed into that day? Who else was moved into action? Yeah, Christians, believers. In other words, people Paul had already led to Christ, whether in the synagogue or in the whole of Tyrannus. People that he has been meeting with, maybe for up to six months, eight months, a year. They're sitting under Paul's teaching for all this time, and only then does it dawn on them. Man, what, what are we doing here? What, what are we doing with this name, Jesus? Look, look what just happened to those seven guys. We, 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 we're playing with fire here. And having been believers already, it was only on that day that they began to attach great honor to the name of Jesus. You, Jesus, you are above me and all that I am. And that means I've got some stuff at home. It means I've got to confess the stuff i got at home. I've got to clear this stuff out. I've got to bring it out publicly. It was many believers who realized for the first time that for them, church, Jesus, had been just a game. And they realized that the way was not just a title, but it was to be a lifestyle. And so it says, so as a result of that, the church prevailed. God increased. Word spread. As a result of what those believers did on that day. So we got to ask ourselves, are we Christians that have been missing this power of God in our lives? How is that that we can have the very Spirit of God resident in us and it not be noticeable? I'm not talking about noticeable to everybody else, to, to you and me. If the Holy Spirit left us today, would your tomorrow be any different than it was yesterday? See what happened. Many who call themselves believers in Ephesus on that day realize we got to get serious about this. This is more than just some game we're playing here. This is more than just a club. Seven naked, wounded guys running down the street prove this. And they realize that there's all kinds of different stages of faith and that there's deeper levels than what they were experiencing. A lot of people in Ephesus probably came to Christ as a magic genie. God who serves me. I mean, it's understanding that God sent his only son, Jesus, to come to earth, die on the cross, but that the purpose really was, you know, forgive my sins, but also make my life comfortable. Answer my prayers, bless my life. Somehow churches can even give us this impression with our teaching. The impression that, you know, because I've said a prayer, because I've gotten baptized, because I give him an hour on a weekend when it's convenient, I don't have anything else to do. So now he's obligated, yes he is, to answer my prayers. Bless my life. God's just a cosmic Coke machine. We do life on our own until we have a problem. Then we just run up to God, take out our prayer requests, stick them in the slot, hit the button, and expect the answers to come out the way we want. Thanks a lot, Jesus. I'll call you next time I need you. So those who've heard the stories, maybe about the aprons and the sweatbands, that concluded, oh, God exists to make me awesome, to make my life easier. Say a prayer and God fixes everything. Can I tell you where that leads? Maybe you already figured this out. 
If that is the Jesus that you serve, if that's your level of faith, you're going to have every right to be upset when he does not come through for you. You pray for better finances that they don't, they don't occur, you can kick the machine. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. When you prayed for your marriage and it's still not getting stronger, you can be upset at that God, the magic genie. When you prayed for that tumor and it still grows, when you prayed with all the faith you can muster and you still end up at a memorial service, trust me, you're going to have a right to be mad at that God. He's not granted your wishes. And you will ultimately walk away from a God whose faith only exists as a magic genie for you. Because he was not going to live up to your expectations. And he will allow you to be frustrated by that. Because that's no God, really. It's just a myth. It's a fable. Yeah, we've gotten enough teaching and scripture in the lecture hall to let us know that God can be useful to us. And when God shows himself not to be useful by our definition, we get really upset with that guy. And Ephesus was filled with people who believed in a magic genie God. Some of them believed God was a, worthy as a consultant. A consultant God. A God that God offers me advice that will benefit me. Yeah, I mean, you start reading scripture as a new Christian, right? Maybe you're taking notes on the messages. Maybe you're getting in a small group. We go through the scriptures and we find all the things that we love. Like God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Oh, that, yeah, that's a cool verse. We love that one. Or uh, God has a plan for me. Not to harm me, but to prosper me, to give me hope and a future. We love that verse so much, we put it on t-shirts and coffee mugs. Maybe it's our life verse. But when we come to scriptures that talk about what God wants to do with us, with our character, in us, in terms of integrity, in our business, the way we function, we go, man, it's good on Sunday morning. But God doesn't really understand how business works in our world. This is just the way things are done. And when it comes to what God says about marriage that we chose, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, we decided that what that really meant was until something better came along. So something that suited me better, that suited my desires better. We turn the pages in Scripture and see God mucking with our sexuality, our morality. It's easy to see for us. He's a cosmic consultant. Yeah, he gives good advice. He gives good suggestions. And as long as I like his advice, and as long as I like his suggestions, I'll follow them. But I really am free to take it or leave it. Because here's the thing about a consultant, you know this. We hire consultants. And when they say what we want to hear, when they say what we like, when they say what makes sense to us, we're happy to follow the advice. But when they say something I completely disagree with, well, I'm ultimately in charge. And this is why living together for me as a Christian is okay. This is why my morality can be different. Because God's a consultant. He doesn't really rule over me. I really, he doesn't really have all of me. And I can find a thousand websites that will agree with me. Websites that tell me that God's word is antiquated. That his words don't really mean what they say they mean, even though it clearly says what they say. That God's word was for a different time, different place, different people. And for us, he's become a consultant. Let me ask you, if you're living in that world, how's that working for you? There's no power of Christ in your life, is there? Come on, be honest. He doesn't have all of you. The pages you like, you hold on to. 
The ones we disagree with, we dismissed. His name is not extolled. He's not held in high honor. He's only useful. But on that day, in Ephesus, something changed. Many people who are actually believers, they weren't pretending to be believers, they were believers. They said, I gotta, I gotta stop playing games with this name. I gotta move from him being some magic genie in my life, some consultant in my life. I gotta hold that name on higher honor that I've held. He's got to be over all that I am and all that I say and all that I do. And with that, we see that many of them enter the new stage of faith that basically blew up that city and the entire Asian continent. On that day, Lord God shows up. Lord God shows up. I serve and worship him. The answer to who's the boss gets answered totally differently. On that day, people realized he wasn't really Lord of their lives. They realized they had junk at home. So, okay, Jesus, you, are, you have permission to look at my life. You have permission to look at my relationships. On that day, people realized that Jesus was something that made them plan their, not only their Sunday mornings differently, but also their Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays different. Plan their whole life different. They went back and they started cleaning out their lives and cleaning out their homes. Under Lord God, it's whatever God says that I do, regardless of my desires. What, what he says goes. Listen, I don't know if there is in our culture in America a more hateful sentence than that. I don't know if there's a greater crime in America today than telling someone that they should not live out their desires. Because you're not to, design, you're not to deny yourself in this culture. That, that is the mandate of our culture. Simply, you're not able to tell somebody that they cannot or should not live out all of their desires as they see fit. Can't tell someone that they should deny their sexual preferences, their sexual interests. Just go for it in our culture. Can't tell somebody you can't deny some, your, them yourselves or reach the fulfillment that you want based on your desires. And yet, if you read the Gospels, the red letter parts, it is the very cornerstone Christ laid down for following him. Almost every page he tells the crowd, you're all welcome to follow me. Everyone's welcome. But to do so, just got to lay down your life. That's all. Got to pick up your cross. Got to deny yourself. Deny your urges. Deny your desires. And desire what I desire for you, which is intended for your own ultimate joy. And then, you can call yourself a follower of me. This is why it's so hard, I think, for so many in the American church to move all the way to Lord God. Because we're trained not to deny our rights because of some antiquated text. But on that, on that day, see, people saw seven beaten, naked guys running down the street. And it hit them. Man, I'm playing games. I'm playing games with this name Jesus. They went home. They got out their junk, they confessed it all, they brought it back, they didn't sell it, they didn't want anybody else using it. They burned it to the tune of about $100,000. Yeah, this is going to cost us, they knew that, but we're done playing games. We've seen now what playing games in the name of Christ can do, we don't want any part of it. And this was a beginning of a wake-up call for the city of Ephesus. A wake-up call. Where have I heard that before? Yeah, Romans 13. 
Romans 13 has four verses that end that chapter. And that's where we're going to end. Paul, after nearly 13 chapters, is going to challenge us. Serge, we've spent 41 weeks over the last year and a half going through the book of Romans, the most amazing book in Scripture. 41 weeks of seeing on every page what God has done for us, what God has done for us, what God has done for us. 41 weeks of making it so clear that this Bible is not about what you and I have to do to get to God, has everything to do with what God has done to get to us. 41 weeks of a God saying, you don't deserve this. Nothing you've done deserves this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You've not earned this. You've not earned one bit of my affection, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You cannot get to heaven on your own. That's okay. I have provided a way. See, there's no way you can be with me because you've got sin and I'm holy and I can't mix. No worries. I figured out a way to make you sinless before me. Someone's got to pay the price because I'm a God of justice. But now you know that Jesus died on a cross. And anybody who believes might have eternal life. Someone did pay the price. 13 chapters of, and listen, let me tell you, the death on the cross did not just forgive us, it cleaned the decks completely. It made you wholly his, in his sight, so that he could actually send his spirit to live in you, even though you and I know we're still messed up. He sees us as completely clean. 41 weeks, 13 chapters, and he gets to the end of chapter 13. And I'm wondering if, as he's writing this, he's thinking about the city of Ephesus and what happened there in that city and that he wants it to happen in every city and every church in America. Four verses. Here's what he says. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, think Ephesus, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We'll talk about those two things in the next two weeks. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. After 41 weeks, Paul writes to the surge, for any of us who haven't gotten it yet, Now's the time to wake up. Stop coming to the hall just for a lecture. Go home and start doing something with this. Walk all the time as if it were daylight always. As if everyone could see everything, every action that you engage in. I wonder if as he's pinning this, if he's remembering what actually happened in the city of Ephesus where people left church, went home, and started getting rid of the crap. Because it was on that day that the church exploded and grew and transformed the fourth largest city in the entire empire and then blew out to all of Asia. Because people stopped playing games with Christianity and they held Christ in the highest honor. And they said, we're all in. We're done with Magic Genie. We're done with Consultant. That hasn't worked for us. Done playing games. I want the Lord God. What would it look like? If a bunch of us just simply took home Jesus with us today, I'll let him just hang out with us. If we gave him permission to assess us, what if he asked, let me see what your life looks like. Let me see what you read. Let me take every iPhone, every iPad, every laptop. What gets watched? What gets viewed? Let me see the last two months of your history. What have you been clicking on? What if he could open up our finances? Let me see the last 
year, how you spent your money, the stuff I've given you, how have you used it? We can see the last three months of our marriage or the last three months of our singleness. Son, how you treat my daughter? Daughter, how you treat my son? Parents, how you treat my kids? Kids, how you treating those parents? What's Wednesday and Thursday look like at work? What needs to change? On that day, they stopped coming to church. They went home looking for stuff to burn. I heard about a church just last week. It was funny reading it. Came across it. You never know what God's going to throw in your lap. A group of junior high, senior high guys that have reverted to flip phones. You believe that? 15 years ago, yeah, flip phones. Know why? They started taking Jesus seriously. They decided that while it was really cool to have access to the internet on the phone, that all of a sudden they found that the internet began to control them. And they decided they could not handle having porn a click away on their phones. And they dumped them for flip phones. Listen, does that cost something if you're a 17-year-old guy? Sure it does. But what did they get in return? Just the power of God in their life. For them, it was worth it. The question is, are we willing to make decisions that are going to cost us something in order to stop playing games and get the power of God into our lives? To make him Lord of our lives, not just for an hour on Sunday. We're going to be bringing communion up here. If you guys back there, go ahead and bring it up. We're going to have the band come back and share one final song just to kind of help us focus our attentions. But it was on a day just like this that the church woke up in Ephesus. After 13 chapters, Paul says, look, it's time to wake up. Every morning this week, you're going to wake up and you're going to put on something. You're going to wear something. You're going to decide what you're going to wear. Paul says, why don't you do this? Why don't you put on Christ? Why not? I want you to see yourself putting Christ on so that in everything you come across in that day, things that don't match up with what you're wearing, you say, okay, I got to change this. Because when he becomes Lord of your life, he will give you the power and strength to change you from the inside out. Enough that a guy named Tyrant said, well, I don't have much, but if you want my warehouse to be your church meet place, okay with me. Isn't it funny that Tyrant gets an honorable mention in the book of Romans? Good job, buddy. What a story. What if it were your story? What if it were our story? Fourth largest city, all of Asia gets reached by the gospel out of a little Bible study in a hall of Tyrannus. And we think changing false church is to beyond God's ability. How foolish we are. What if it were our story?